Well, as some of you guys may know, if you are slightly into history, you may have heard of a massive conflict known as World War II. It was pretty, uh, pretty big, pretty uh, influential. Um, some people have lived through that conflict. And um, the Marines had fought massive campaigns in Europe and in the Pacific, fighting the Japanese and the Germans. And less than five years after the war ended, they found themselves back in another war known as the Korean War. A lot of people don't rec- uh, remember the Korean War, um, but there was a famous general of the Marines known as Major General Oliver P. Smith. And he was kind of a man's man. He was a pretty based general. He was really good at what he did. And he would lead his troops in the front line. General, generally, generals didn't do that. They led from behind. They had all the comforts of a nice, pristine office. They had all the creature comforts you could want, all the whiskey you could want, while the men did all the dirty work, but not this guy. He went with the men. He lived in the same conditions they did. He rejected everything that he could have had as a general. And he ended up leading his men in a daring amphibious landing up in North Korea, in communist-held North Korea, in order to try to uh, uh, deal the decisive blow in the war. Anyway, as he's in there, he's looking around, trying to find the enemy, and then out of the jungles come communist guerrillas and fighters, and they surround the Marines. And then the men, in great fear and trepidation, come towards General Smith, and they say to him, we are surrounded. And they're expecting their leader to say something like, well, I guess the surrender is in order. But he doesn't say this. He says, we have been looking for the enemy for several days now. We finally found them. We're surrounded. That simplifies our problem of getting to them and killing them. He was a man of uh, very blunt words, and he ended up fighting a very daring um, campaign and a daring retreat. And he's also famous for saying, retreating, we're not retreating, we're just advancing in a different direction. He uh, He was very well loved by his troops. Well, today in our passage, we see Israel going down into Egypt. They are going down into enemy-occupied territory, and there they're going to be surrounded on all sides by people who do not know God and do not worship God. They're going to be surrounded by people who not only uh, despise their religion, but despise them. The Egyptians saw the Israelites as an abomination. They didn't want anything to do with them. They were detestable to them. And you may be asking the question, why does God have them there? Israelites can turn to God and say, you have affliction in store for us, and we're surrounded. And God, in the same way, can say, well, this simplifies things. We have them right where we want them, and I have you right where I want you. Today, we're going to see the amazing sovereignty of God. The absolute brilliance of his decision making and why he makes the decisions the way he makes decisions, which are completely foreign to us. And we're going to see that the church actually flourishes in affliction, that God's people actually flourish in affliction. And God, he hasn't uh, lost the plot. He hasn't uh, made a mistake in his plans when we may find ourselves right in the, uh, the middle of Egypt where we find ourselves right in the middle of a pagan culture who do not like us, who detest us, and see us in as an abomination. And in a way, does that not describe our current situation? I think today, Genesis 46 will speak powerfully to the situation the church finds themselves in. So I have three points that I want to share with you guys. The first one is, uh, be ready to seek the Lord. 
The second point is to be ready to trust the Lord. And my third point is be ready to meet the Lord. Let's get into it. Genesis 46 from verse 1. Be ready to seek the Lord. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Bathsheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Bathsheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. It has been a long time now that Jacob has been in the promised land. We know his story, right? We know how he escaped from that uh, maniacal, crazy, controlling father-in-law Laban, how he labored long for 14 years, how he came to confront his brother Esau that wanted him dead, threatened to take the promised land away from him. He wrestled God all night, refusing to let go until he received the blessing. Now, after much turmoil, murder, defilement, grief, Jacob is leaving the promised land. He is leaving the land behind that he had spent all his life coming towards, that he risked everything for. And in his excitement to see Joseph and his desire to protect his family, he presses on ahead to Egypt, loading the wagons, gathering all the belongings he had, not a single person, not a a single animal, no livestock, not a single child, no single tent was left behind. He had revived spirits, we learned last week, remember that? And he's charging down to Egypt like he's a young man. And then he comes to Bathsheba. And if you're an Israelite, you know exactly where we're talking about. If you're an average Aussie, you're like, where is that? Well, Belsheba is the southernmost town in all of Canaan. Later in Israel, it became known as the marking point for the southernmost section of Israel. And in that spot, Jacob feels a tug on his heart and it leads him back the direction he came. In front of him is Egypt, the land of trouble for his grandfather Abraham, and a land outside of the promise. Behind him is the land that he had yearned for, strived for, deceived his father for, fought for, and almost died for. Jacob didn't know what he needed to be doing. On one hand, it seemed like God was calling him to Egypt, right? His son Joseph is the most powerful man in all the world apart from Pharaoh, He has the control of the greatest nation of the world at the time, and he will protect his family in Egypt. And so you're thinking as Jacob, the obvious thing God wants us to do is to go down to Egypt. But what about the other hand? On the other hand, God had told Jacob, this is the land I'm giving you. This is the land where you must stay. This is the land where you must remain. And so should he ever dare leave it? What would you do in that situation? I'll tell you what I do. I would need God to show up. I would need God to answer me. And that is exactly what any sane follower of God should do. Jacob here 
seeks the Lord in Beersheba. He doesn't dare step into Egypt before he has God's okay. And so he offers a sacrifice in Beersheba. He seeks God's favor, if possible, a word from him. And that night in a vision, like so long ago in Bethel, God shows up. This time he says, Jacob, Jacob. And he replies, here I am. Now, some of you guys who may know your Bible pretty well, this may ring similar to different passages in the Bible. It's a unique formula that only shows up three other times. We've already seen it with Abraham, where God calls Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. We'll find out later with a burning bush, same thing happens with Moses. And another thing happens with Samuel, where God calls them twice and they say, here I am. And these events are very important events. They only happen a rare amount of times in the Bible because they are very rare turning points in the story of Israel. Everything is going to change from this moment onwards because Israel is going to go down to Egypt and they will not return for 400 years. This is a huge moment in the course of salvation history. This is no small thing that Jacob is doing right now. And just like when it happens for Moses and Abraham and Samuel, these are huge turning points. Samuel will crown a king. Moses will enact a law. Jacob will bring a people and Abraham will find a land. And God says to Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. And this gives us a little insight into the way Jacob was processing these events. One minute, he's excited to see his son Joseph, and the next minute, he's terrified. Is this the right thing to do? And God says to him, do not be afraid. Do not be terrified of leaving the promised land. I will bring you back. I have something I need to do in Egypt. I need to make you into a great nation. And Jacob, he was terrified that this was outside of God's will, and yet here God shows his wondrous grace He promises to be with him, to protect him, and to bring him up again. And not only that, he says, your beloved son Joseph will close your eyes. Matthew Henry says, whatever low or dark valley we are called into at any time, we may be confident that if God goes down with us into it, that he'll surely bring us up again. If he goes down with us into death, he will surely bring us out again into glory. Jacob's 130 years old at this point. He's about to kick the can. But God promises that he will die in the presence of Joseph and that Joseph himself will close his eyelids as a preparation for burial. All that was left was for Jacob to trust God and trust that this step of faith into Egypt will not result in his family being there forever, but that God will fulfill his promise to make them a great nation and to give this land to Abraham's descendants. And so this is my second point. Be ready to trust the Lord. All right, let's get ready for some Hebrew names. Verse 8. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Kami. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jashin, Zohan, and Shaul. The The son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, 
Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padam Aram, together with his daughter Dina, altogether his sons and his daughters, numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphian, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Ar- Aradi, and Ereli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, with Serah their sister. And the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jazil, Guni, Jezer, and Shilem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. We'll pause there. Jacob's family, as we can see in this passage, has grown tremendously. All those Hebrew names were names of different sons who would be heads of different households. These, this was a tremendously fruitful family. I don't know about you, but having such a large family would be an amazing blessing to see. Yet God didn't promise Jacob 70 descendants, did he? He promised Jacob descendants as numerable, uh, numerable, I don't know if that's a word, numerous, there we go, that's the one, as the stars in the sky, as the sand of the sea. He promised that Jacob would become a nation. And God knows that Israel wouldn't return to Canaan of their own free will. Eventually, the Israelites would settle in Egypt. They would choose to stay in Egypt over Canaan. They would see the, uh, the luxuriousness, the fruitfulness, the uh, beauty of the land of Goshen, and they would choose that land over moving back to Canaan. Rather than simply riding out the famine and returning, they would use the leverage of Joseph's prestige and prominence to bless themselves and to multiply. God knows they're going to stay in Egypt, but he wasn't stumped. It was all according to plan. God was going to use this for His glory. Long ago in Genesis 15, 13, God said something amazing to Abraham. We've already read this. God says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Their decision to stay in Egypt would cause them to fall into affliction. The Hebrew word for slavery. But God would use this for the good of the nation. When God took Israel out of Egypt, when the 400 years were up, the Israelites were almost 2 million people. Think about that. 2 million people. God was going to take these 70 or so people There were some sons' wives that weren't in the list. And he was going to multiply them into an enormous nation. And this was an enormous nation for the time. Two million people was enormous. And you see, Egypt was the best suited place for Israel to not just survive, but thrive. 
and to maintain their identity as a distinct nation. Imagine with me for a second that we took 70 French people and we brought that community here to the Hunter Valley and we settled them all in the same place. What do you think would happen after 100 years? Well, they'd intermarry, wouldn't they? And they would uh, start to learn English and they would start to get jobs and they would start to go to our schools and they'd start to listen to our media. And soon those French customs and that French culture and that French language will slowly drift away until all those French people look like Australians. I mean, look at Gary for a second. He was born in the UK to a Scottish mum on the border. And he's the most Aussie guy I know. It wasn't even one generation and he's already assimilated. The temptation for the Israelites to assimilate to Canaanite culture was huge. We've already seen it, haven't we? We've seen a lot of this in the book of Genesis. It was a very real temptation. Jacob had already agreed to assimilate to the Shechemites before Levi and Simeon decided to put an end to that at the end of a sword. We see Simeon in this passage, verse 10, he has his son Shaul to some Canaanite woman. And there's no indication here that he even married her. Esau, what did he get up to? Well, he took a lot of wives. Some of them were Canaanite women. The temptation for the Israelites to integrate with Canaan society was so huge. And it would be something that would plague them for a long, long time. So the question naturally arises, well, yeah, great, but would this be any different in Egypt, right? What's stopping them from speaking Egyptian and marrying with the Egyptians and becoming Egyptians and losing their distinct identity as Israelites. Well, I'll tell you what, they would have a very different time in Egypt. A couple of chapters ago, we learned that the Egyptians see it as an abomination to eat with the Hebrews. We find out at the end of this passage that Egyptians see shepherds as an abomination, which Jacob and his family were shepherds. They were keepers of livestock. There was also a law on the books in Egyptian law that forbidden any intermarriage with Hebrews. No Egyptian was allowed to marry a Hebrew. They weren't going to have to worry about the seductive Egyptian ladies coming and taking their young men because those ladies saw their young men as scum, people to avoid. There was no temptation there. And not only that, Jacob and his sons would be settling in the land of Goshen, a distinct area from the bulk of the Egyptian nation. And although the Hebrews would be considered second-class citizens by the Egyptians, God would use this to preserve his people as a distinct people. God was going to take matters into his own hands and he was going to use the pagan Egyptians to keep his wayward people distinct because they weren't going to do it for themselves. The temptation to abandon God and intermarry with pagans would have been completely non-existent. But did you catch something else? How long was this? 400 years. 400 years. That is a long, long time. There's anything you can conclude from looking at this passage is that God does not look at time the same way we do, does he? 400 years is no uh, huge thing for God. God doesn't look at 400 years and go, oh man, that is a long time. He doesn't think that at all. For him, 400 years is short. God is patient. God is deliberate and he is purposeful. He makes every decision very purposely. And you know what? It's hard for me to accept a guy like me, I'm young, I'm passionate, I want everything to happen right now. I want everything to change right now. 
when some wives marry men, they want their men to be like fully formed, mature men right away. As soon as they marry them, unfortunately, ladies, it takes some time for your man to get there. And uh, man, it also takes your wife sometimes to get there as well. One of the hard lessons that I've had to learn is not to think in one year or five years, but 400 years. And you may think that's insane. No, it's not. Good question to ask any new candidate for ministry is not, mate, what's your 10-year plan? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Where do you see this community in 400 years? That's a better question to ask him. You're going to see where his priorities lie very quickly. We don't usually think about it, but this is what trusting God looks like. Will God protect my people for 400 years? Often, all the things we can think about is, is God going to save our children? Is God going to protect our children? Is God going to call our children into His kingdom? It's a bit different to think of 400 years, isn't it? Let's be real for a second. Over the last 60 years, things have been very tough for us in the church. It's not the case in Africa, Latin America, Asia. They're they're doing great. They're thriving. The gospel's going forth there. But out here in the West, they've been eating our lunch. For the last 60 years, things have been going very poorly. We've been in free fall. Church planning organizations like Acts 29, you know, our church has been had a large part to do with them. They've come in with this whole church planning gig. And we think, yes, church plants, they're going to turn the ship around. We're going to make some headway. We're going to change things. And yet we see that it hasn't really done that. We see evangelists come up. Back in the past, we used to have Billy Graham, right? And everyone thought, Billy Graham, he's going to solve this situation for us. He's going to come in, and by the end of it, he's going to invite everyone up to believe in Jesus. They're all going to believe in Jesus. We're back to a Christian nation again. Well, hey, that time came, and that time time passed. And it was like less than 1% of the people that came forward for a decision are Christians now. Some people put their hope in political leaders. They'll come back. They'll restore Christian morality. They'll turn the West around. They haven't, have they? And we wonder... What is God doing? Why do we see the gospel going forth everywhere else but here? Why are we struggling? Why does no one care? What do we do when we labor and we preach the gospel and we share Jesus and we haven't seen much change? Do you know what we do? The same as Jacob. Think about what Jacob could have said to God. God, you promised that my descendants would be as numerous as the sands in the sea. We're 70 people. And you say you're going to make me into a great nation. Or we could trust God and his timing. Jesus told us to disciple the nations. And in Matthew 28, he promised to be with us until the very end of the age. He promised that. He says, I will be with you. He's not, he's not saying, I, I might be with you. He's not saying, if you do well and you're good little boys and girls, I might come around and help you guys out. No, he says, I will be with you till the very end of the age. But he did not promise that it would be quick. Think about this for a second. At the end of the first century, there were fewer than 10,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. The population of the Roman Empire at the time numbered about 60 million people. That means that Christians made up 0.0017%. Imagine being a first century Christian. You're staring down the enormous, powerful Roman Empire at 0.0017% of the population. 
What are you going to do? How are you going to turn that ship around? How are you going to affect this pagan world? You'd be thinking, well, uh, this is going to be an impossible task. And true, yep, that's an impossible task. By the year 200, 100 years later, the number increased to a little more than 200,000. Still under 1%, 0.36% of the population. But check this out. 50 years later, the numbers had risen to more than a million. Almost 2% of the population. But the most striking figure, however, comes two generations later. By the year 300, Christians made up 10% of the population. Approximately 6 million people claimed the name of Christ in the Roman Empire. In 200 years... God had taken the Christian population from less than 10,000 to 6 million. Could it be that our timescales and expectations don't match the way that God acts in history? Maybe God's plan is far more longer and far more complex than our simple plans. We might be a little mustard seed out here in the hunter, but by God's grace, over the course of generations, we will become a magnificently fruitful tree. The method is always the same. We have to be distinct. God brought Israel to Egypt to be distinct. The temptation for every church is to pull an Israelite and Canaan situation, to become like the Canaanites. And sometimes God has to bring us down to a place where we're hated before we realize that the pagans don't actually have our best interests in hearts, at heart. Sometimes we actually have to be in a position where they view Christianity negatively before we realize that we actually have to be distinct, a distinct people. That we have to raise our children up in the training and admonition of the Lord rather than entrusting our children to other people. We need to be preaching the word in season and out of season, whether people are responding to it or not. And we need to be believing and praying that God will build his church. It's exactly what the Israelites had to do, wasn't it? They had to teach about God to their children. They had to be distinct from Egypt. They had to do it whether or not it was popular or not. And they had to believe and pray that God would make them into a mighty great nation. And Christian, if you do that, by faith, that mustard seed will grow. When all is said and done, you can stand before God, having done this small part that God has given to you, to the claiming of the hunter in Jesus' name. This is my third point. Be ready to meet the Lord. Verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls to you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. It's a very beautiful moment, isn't it? 22 years 
Joseph didn't know if his father still lived. And Jacob thought Joseph was dead. And here they are finally reunited. And as you can imagine, it is a very emotional event. These are two men of distinction weeping on each other's neck as they embrace each other. And it's this beautiful moment that kind of just almost brings a tear to my eye just reading it. Imagine witnessing it. The son who was thought to be dead is alive. When we read this passage, it's just that little foretaste, that little glimpse of that wonderful moment when we will be reunited with our loved ones in the resurrection. This is when Jacob says to him, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. This is the same Jacob who had complained so much that you guys are going to bring my grey hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. This is the same Jacob overwhelmed with self-pity. The same Jacob who can now face death with joy and peace. He has seen that his beloved son is alive. Not only is he living, but thriving and bringing salvation to the whole family. What else can Jacob do but just give God to the glory? I can go be with God. I can go meet God now. Joseph tells his father and his brothers, hey, when Pharaoh comes and talks to you, just make sure you really emphasize that point that you're shepherds. Anytime you can bring it up, just say, hey, we're shepherds, we keep livestock, because they're not going to want you guys living with them. They're going to give you the land of Goshen if you do that. So please make sure you do that, because the Egyptians have a very strict caste system, and carrying of livestock, you know, was an abomination. That was something that the peasants did. That wasn't something that the upper class people like Joseph did. And Joseph's like, hey, use that to your advantage. It'll keep you distinct, it'll keep you away from the bulk, because he knew the Egyptians meant business. He, he, he didn't have some rosy colored glasses. He knew who they were. He knew the Egyptians were some gnarly people. So he says, I want to keep you guys distinct. Jacob, he sees the small amount that he contributed to God's plan. And he was glad. He was now at peace, knowing that the future was in the hands of a good God who had planned good and not evil. Notice that. To Jacob, His life must have seemed like a small contribution to God's kingdom. But over the course of history, God would make him, would have used him to make for himself a people through the favored son, Jesus. It's the same for you. Never forget the contribution you make to the kingdom. It is a real contribution. Think about Jacob's life. He's a shepherd. He's looking after a pretty unruly family. He probably doesn't feel like as he comes to the end of his life, man, I made a massive contribution to the kingdom of God. And yet here we are reading this in the scriptures, seeing this enormous change that would happen to the generations that came after. And Christian, just remember this, you will make a world of difference to the generations that come after you. Pass down a spiritual inheritance. Every conversation that points people to Christ every nappy you change, every line of code you write, every praise you sing, every child you pray with, every meal you bake has massive implications for the generations to come. Every contribution you make to the kingdom is a real, lasting, eternal contribution to, uh, to eternal souls. When we are a distinct people, loving our own, growing, multiplying, worshiping, sharing these small acts, We may only be like 70 or so people, but when we look around, we're a lot less than 70. But hey, it might turn into 6 million people in 100 years. 
Brothers and sisters, how often can we be like Jacob before he knew Joseph was alive? We think God has only evil planned. He's not going to turn the hunter around. He's not going to really change anything. In fact, my children probably won't even believe in him. That defeatist attitude, this attitude of, oh, my hairs are going to go down to Sheol in sorrow. Woe is me. This is a terrible predicament, a terrible situation. What is God up to? But if Jacob only knew what was around the corner, if he only knew God's plan, that it was a plan of rescue and salvation, that it was a good plan, that his beloved son lives, he would have had a very different attitude, wouldn't he? It doesn't matter what situation you find yourself in. Trust in God. Trust in the beloved Son of God who lives, though they thought he was dead. And if you feel like Christianity is dead in the hunter, I've got a G.K. Chesterton quote for you. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. We believe in a God of resurrection. Don't lose heart. Be encouraged. God has good plan for our area. If our hope is in Jesus, we have hoped in the right place. Let's pray. Father, we feel small. We feel insignificant in the grand scheme of what's going on out here in the Hunter. And we feel like We'll never make a dent in this place sometimes. But Father, we know that it's in affliction that the church thrives. And we know that you have called your people to be distinct. And so Father, I pray that you would build us into a people that love you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. That we are distinct from this pagan culture we find ourselves living in. That we do not go the way that they have gone but we live for your glory and your glory alone. Father, by faith we trust that you will grow this mustard seed into something enormous and magnificent. And Lord, though we may never live to see it, we trust that you work on timescales that are completely beyond what we could ever dream of or hope of. And Father, I pray for my brother or sister here that feels like their work is fairly insignificant in the grand scheme of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would gently rebuke them, that they would see that their life has eternal value and that their small contributions to the kingdom are contributions of a good and faithful servant. Lord, encourage us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to see the goodness of your son, Jesus, and to build this household on the rock of Christ so that when storms come and afflictions come, we will stand the test. And Lord, would you erode any sand that threatens to come in and make our foundations weak and wobbly? And Lord, would you raise up more leaders in this area? Would you call more men and women into your kingdom? And would you build a robust and anti-fragile community? We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.